Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive, glowing things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, and I can't possibly imagine any plausible reason why, pause your recording and go and give us a five-star rating wherever you consume your podcast. Twitter, not Twitter, what am I saying? Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, etc. cetera. Uh, unless, unless you're they, driving. Uh, well, and unless they have like a 10-star system. I, I've never been on Google Play or Spotify. Is it like out of 10 stars? This is a it's, thing that I trust exists because I hear other people say it. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a follow us. Rating. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hey, Christopher, how are you? I'm doing great, Kirk. We had the opening of football season on Sunday, which was a wonderful <laughs> reminder that we cannot have nice things. We do not get nice things. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we are Vikings fans growing up in Minnesota, and uh, the Vikings went out and laid an egg, uh, which is the sports term for stinking up the joint. Uh, and uh, I have some friends who are, are Bears fans, and the Bears struggled all day, uh, but they, they we were playing the Packers, they were playing the Lions, and you know what Lions are going to do, Kirk? Lions are going to Lion, <laughs> and then they're going to blow the game at the last possible minute. Uh, I mean, in fact, they had a guy who uh, had, he was, had yeah. the, the winning touchdown pass in his hands. And He's he a rookie. Back. He's a rookie. He was backpedaling in the end zone. He was in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very, so anyway, very. You put on those baby blues and suddenly um, <laughs> you, you don't play the same. I don't know. There's something, something yeah, going on yeah. there. So, I mean, there's, you know, the one line of, gosh. I was going to say one line I really didn't like in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, uh, when in fact I liked none <laughs> of the <only> lines. <laughs> I like none of the lines, but it, it seemed just so arbitrary that uh, uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are driving this little submarine, I guess, through the <laughs> core of the planet and uh, with really no defense against what turns out to be giant creatures. And one just takes a giant bite and they're just kind of helpless and seconds away from uh you know the water pressure overcoming the interior of the cabin and uh do you remember what what the deus ex machina was it was an even bigger yeah coming out coming out of the blue and and, and, and liam neeson's sage advice to his young padawan not not so young padawan was uh there's always a bigger fish 
something right. So, 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 so here's the parallel I'm drawing is that as, as sad as our um, his, uh, story is as, as, as Vikings fans, um, there's always a sadder story, which is yeah. Lions. Let me say two things. Uh, first of all, like uh, reader, this reader, yes, we're, this is the 1927, like New York book, <laughs> review of books. Listener, um, even if you don't care about football, you know what punting is, right? When your offense doesn't do well, you, you, you punt, right? And, and as a defense, the whole idea is to force the other offense to punt. Christopher, how many times did Green Bay punt on Sunday against the Vikings? I do not believe they punted. <laughs> that punter earned his paycheck sitting on the bench, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that a reader should know that just, just is like you – said, You said reader. I did. This is – oh, my gosh. Listener, you need to know, like, we're recording this at 9.53 p.m. on a Thursday night. I'm trying to keep myself up by literally eating coffee beans. So I may get, I may get uh, a little goofy. Um, when we bought our house here in 2007, um, our children were we – we had one child. My oldest son was a year and a half old. And um, – and I don't believe we were yet pregnant with our second child. So we weren't even like, we were vaguely thinking about school districts. Like, uh, get, you got you to gotta buy a house in a nice school district. So we moved in, whatever. Right? My children begin showing up to pre-K uh, stuff and kindergarten orientation. And they come, begin coming home with this, this, our local school district swag. And I notice, I'm colorblind, but I notice the colors that they're coming home with. And I realize that I have moved into a school district and I'm in too deep now. I'm two years in, three years in by the time my kids are into school, that I moved into a school district with Green Bay Packers colors. And so it is my great curse to, as my children grow up and I coach them in Little League and in basketball and watch them do all the things and go into gymnasiums and auditoriums for concerts. I see them and I applaud them and I smile as they wear the green and the gold, the Green Bay Packers colors. I mean, just objectively, they're horrendous. They look terrible <laughs> together. Like the colors just don't, they're, they're terrible. Uh, well, I mean, so <laughs> listener, be warned, do your research when you purchase a house. <laughs> or live in a state with, uh, with open enrollment. Make, make important decisions like look at the colors of the school district that you're moving into. Got to have priorities. Right, right. So, yes. Kirk, how's uh, Daphne doing with soccer? Oh, my gosh. She had her first game. Um, you, uh, my wife sent you and your wife video evidence of how foolish parents are trying to cheer <laughs> for four-year-olds. Well, right. what I loved is that first uh, you described it over text – just just the the chaos of watching <laughs> what what four four year olds right th- three and four year olds four and five year olds watching such young kids play soccer uh but then then comes in kind of the stupidity of the parents and uh Kirk, I wonder if you could splice in just a little bit of your audio uh, if you <laughs> if you can't if you can't here's my impression kick the ball, Daphne, kick the ball, kick the ball. Kick the ball, Daphne. Kick the ball. And she tur- is turning and looking at him and just kind of shrugging, like, kind of like, this is my best effort. Like, I'm trying my best. Kick the ball. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have, so there, there are several things that are going on there. First of all, with four and five-year-olds, first of all, with four-year-olds, let's, let's leave the five-year-olds out because that, that year difference is massive. Uh, with four-year-olds, there, there are three basic categories when the kids step on the field. There's category number one, which is, I know I'm supposed to go that way, and I know the other team's going that way, and I know the goal is to kick the ball that way into that net thingy. And I'm going to try to do that. And when they have the ball, I think they shouldn't get into the net thingy. All right. And then you have uh, category number two, which is like, I know the ball is really important. And I think that's my direction. And then you have category number three, which is like, I wonder if I can find a clover here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so like, it's interesting. All three like are shaken out. And I would say Daphne was firmly in category two. She scored two goals. I, I'm not sure how, like she did. She did. It was really funny. But then you're right. She would look over at me sometimes and, uh, and she'd give me like a sheepish smile and a shrug. Like, like really, I have to take the ball from them. I have to. So we both, both in practice and, and, and at home with practicing tackling. Mm. Right? And think of how counterintuitive this is to a Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of impolite. Her entire life, we've been telling her that don't is take, your brother's. Don't take away your brother's toy. <laughs> you, no, no, no. You cannot take his toy. That is his. Do not touch that. And now we're like, we're screaming, go get him, kick him in the shins and take his ball. And so right, there has to be some confusion there. So no, that, what, the audio that you caught, that, my, that you got from my wife, <laughs> was, was near the end when she was like kind of tired and like, when I was just like something in me, sort of mini, maybe mini snapped. And it was just like, just kick the ball away from her. Yeah. But usually I'm, I have like a, like, you know how dogs, we, we put in electric fences and dog have shock collars and they learn not to cross boundaries. Right. Cause they get zapped. Like I think of myself, I, I, I invisibly put on the shock collar when I get out of a vehicle to a child's game. I say, th- I say, I am not the coach. I am not the coach. And I, Christopher, I remember how good our father was. He was so good. He didn't yell anything. All he ever Never. said was, I'm proud of you, son. And that was all, that was all we ever got from him. Right. And he, he would probably, if he were here right now, he would probably say things like, like, Oh no, no, no. I was embarrassed of it. This game or that I game. Yelled at the ref and I, I yelled at the ref. Right. And I don't remember any of that stuff. Maybe he did, but I, but I hope that, that my kids only ever remember me being proud. So I've had to, I've had to, decide i know myself christopher i have to a coach my children or b if i'm not going to take on the burden to coach my children i just have to shut up and smile and as you can mm. see sometimes like like it like a dog that's too dumb to stay inside the yard and like thinks it's worth it to get <laughs> like the shock I, i'm like you have to kick the ball yeah so uh so even better than splicing in the audio we will post <laughs> the video yes yes the facebook discussion group. oh that'll be that that you know what that is good penance for me <laughs> that is good good penance for me yeah christopher yeah. you got anything else should we move on to the gospel let's move on to the gospel i said that in real pittsburghy should we move on should we move on let's move on move on to the gospel okay
This week's gospel comes from Matthew chapter 20. I'm, I'm sorry, that was, uh, that was my attempt at a Minnesota accent. That <laughs> I don't know, maybe recording That, that, that was pu- perfectly natural, um, you know, 15 years ago. It, it's just, oh, geez, Wade. Okay. Um, what you watching? Gophers. These are, these are Fargo references here. So uh, uh, this week's gospel comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his own vineyard. And going about the third hour, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the first i'm sorry beginning with the last up to the first and when those hired about the 11th hour came each of them received a denarius now when those hired first came they thought they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius and on receiving it they grumbled to the master of the house saying these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take whatever belong, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this story comes on the heels of Jesus' encounter with the rich young man. It, and like much of this gospel of Matthew, it emphasizes the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. And these stories are linked together with this saying, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is a quote that comes immediately before today's reading, and is also the last verse of today's reading. So it's bracketed by, by uh, Jesus. Um, and so this links them and, and kind of emphasizes the nature of the kingdom. Those who would be first are last, and those who would be last will be first. And uh, so it's, it's also tied thematically uh, in this way, that, that the encounter with the rich young man I talked about a little bit last week, it's more than just the response of, of the young man. There's this whole other thing after that. So yes, the young man goes away because he had many possessions. But we also see the response of the disciples. Last week, I talked a little bit about the legalism inherent in the question, uh, what must I do? Uh, to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and the reality is that he loved money more than God. And, and Jesus used this as a chance to teach his disciples. He says, uh, after this, again, there are many verses here of, of Jesus 
encounter or, or his teaching based on this with his disciples. Um, so there's a lot more than just the story of their young man. He says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Think about how shocking this was for them to hear. In their eyes, in that day, uh, wealth would be a sign of favor from God. Anyone who is wealthy would have been considered blessed by God because God is the one who all things come from God. And here Jesus is saying, nope, actually wealth makes entry into heaven much more difficult. And so his disciples, their response is fascinating. They said, so, so they're like, well, then who can be saved? Hmm. If this rich man who keeps the law and whose wealth seems to be an indication of the Lord's favor, if he can't be saved, what hope is there for us? It's kind of inherent in the question, you know. <laughs> they, uh, all they say is who could be saved, but, but that's kind of the implication there. Now, Jesus replies, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This reality that we've been reading through, in, in, if, if you're in a, a, a lectionary church, we've been reading through the book of Romans, the theme of which is that God justifies the ungodly. And then we have Peter. We, we love Peter, but he's so often slow on the uptake. So now he's trying to justify himself. And he says, look, we have left everything and followed you. So the thing that Jesus tells this guy, to uh, the rich young man, uh, Peter's like, look, we did that. We left everything and followed you. The rich dude didn't do that, and we did. He may, he may not have left his riches behind, but we left what we had. So we didn't have riches, fine, whatever. But we left, we left what we had. You've got to have something special saved up for us. And Jesus says, yes, but not in this life. But in the life to come, you will receive 100-fold what you've sacrificed in this life. And then he ends that, that teaching with, many who are first will be last, and the last first. So here in chapter 20, uh, Jesus launches into a parable and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And a little bit later, I'll, I'll talk about how this is pretty common practice uh, in, in that time to, to go find day laborers and, and then to pay them at the end of the day. Uh, this story is, 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 makes a lot of sense to a Jewish audience. Uh, the the vineyard uh, is is a common imagery for for the people of God for for Israel. Uh, that's that's a common image for Israel. We we see it in Isaiah five and, and in various other places that Israel is the vineyard. But right away we actually see something pretty strange about the behavior of the owner of this vineyard. That he sends not uh, a subordinate, but he goes himself to hire the laborers. Not just once at the beginning of the day but repeatedly uh, as he goes at the beginning of the day at 6 a.m. at 9 a.m. at noon at 3 p.m. Then again at 5 p.m. And, and this is not typical, but it is an insight into our father. Uh, I've talked before about how much I love Luke chapter 15, where we see the parable of lost things. We see the lost sheep, the lost coin and the parable of the lost son or prodigal son. We worship a God who loves lost things. And not only does God love lost things, all of heaven loves lost things. That we see that 
all of heaven rejoices at one lost soul who is found. I mean, this, this, is, this is something that, uh, I mean, I, I can imagine this is just raucous celebration at a repentant sinner turning to God. And, and so the imagery in this parable, parable could not be more clear. Uh, God is the owner of the vineyard. The labor, uh, labor situation uh, is, is, is not uncommon. So like the listeners would have, would have understood this right away. Uh, unskilled laborers go out early seeking work. And at the end of the day, they receive their wage, which would allow them to feed their family that day. And later on, I'll explain actually that this was found in the Old Testament law. So at 6 p.m., it's finally quitting time, and they lined up to receive their wages. Uh, situation here is clear to everybody. Those who had started working early in the morning saw that more and more workers had showed up throughout the day. And it seems like they've kind of been keeping track of this, right? It's, it's kind of clear that they know who the Johnny Come Latelys are. Uh, and maybe it's just, uh, just a, a visible difference that they're drenched in sweat. They've got dust. Uh, and, and just look like they've worked all day and maybe the new arrivals look like they, they've worked an hour uh, or maybe they're just paying attention to, to kind of their status and where they are. But when everyone sees that these newcomers are paid for a full day's work, I can only imagine the buzz that's going on down the line. Like the people that came at at noon who are like, whoa, like if, if, if the people worked one hour, got a full day's wage, and they're, you know, doing some quick, you know, math, you know, counting on their fingers, maybe pulling out a pocket calculator uh, and, and just thinking about, uh, I mean, this is a subsistence uh, existence here that we're talking about, that, that this denarius uh, would be basically enough to go buy some food to feed your family that night. This isn't enough to build a nest egg. So proportional pay w would make sense, right? Um and, and, and certainly that's what they were hoping for. But when uh, the master comes to the people who've been working all day, they receive one denarius, a day's wage. Now, they don't go to their union and file a complaint. They don't wait until the next day when they're hired and protest by working as slowly as possible to demonstrate their dissatisfaction. I'm just picturing what maybe an employee would do now. Uh, right. today um just like really work slowly to demonstrate your dissatisfaction with the unfairness of your employer but right away they say what's up with this we worked all day look at my crow's feet my complexion can't handle this kind of sun damage we worked all day and yet we received the same wage as those who showed up just an hour before quitting time and jesus reply uh is is immediately at least for us as readers um and and so i you know for us as readers we can read through the scriptures and we see that he says uh friend uh, this is one of three times he uses this word in the in the book of matthew and each time he's talking to people who are in the wrong um he uses it here but also in chapter 22 to the man who shows up or I guess it's used in the parable of, of, of the wedding feast. And, and, he, and it's used to address the man who shows up to the wedding not wearing wedding clothes. And then again in chapter 26 in addressing Judas when Judas shows up oh, with gosh. soldiers to arrest him. 
And so Jesus says, friend, we agreed on this wage. It's a fair wage. And even though these workers who arrived at 5 p.m. only worked one hour, they will be able to field their families tonight. I mean, the fact is there, there were laborers out there um, that, that if they hadn't received work at 5 p.m., would have gone home and their, their family would have had to sleep on an empty stomach. So, I mean, Jesus is essentially saying to them, would, or I guess the, the, the master is saying, do you really want these guys to go home hungry? So this parable is in all likelihood a response to Peter's question in verse 27 of chapter 19, when Peter asks, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, Peter's kind of looking for kind of proportional reward, right? Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and uh, so you're going to see people who turn to Jesus at 5 p.m. Uh, Peter's kind of telling this to, 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 to Peter. He's, he's like, you're going to see people turn to me at 5 p.m. and be welcomed into the kingdom. Don't begrudge God's generosity towards them just because you have been here all day because it is the character of God to always show mercy. I mean, think about the, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus. He did not have a lot of time to amend his life. Um, you know, repent. We talk about repentance and amendment of life. He did not have time to amend his life and yet he was welcomed into the kingdom. Okay, so I'm going to say two additional things, and then I'm going to pass the baton. I, I have some further things to say after that, but I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but just to warn you, these are not two short things, <laughs> but they are just two things. Okay, all right. One, it's interesting to see that the Old Testament reading that is paired with this comes from the book of Jonah. Now, when we think of Jonah, we may think about him being swallowed by a fish, or you may think of him not wanting to go to Nineveh in the first place and hopping in a boat headed the other direction, which is what got him swallowed by a fish in the first place. But the conclusion of Jonah is the most interesting part. Uh, you know, Jonah avoided this whole thing because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach destruction to them. But he did preach destruction to Nineveh because of their evil ways. And what happened? They believed God and they fasted, it says, from the greatest yeah. to the least. And the king decreed that everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so uh, what it says is that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And then here's, here's the interesting sentence. But it displeased Jonah. Yep. And Jonah went out and he watched the city to kind of see what would happen. And God appointed a plant to grow and give him some shade. And Jonah loved this. It, it, it comforted him. It gave him shade. And, and in the midst of kind of his misery of being like, I've been through a lot. I was on a shipwreck. or They, they threw me in the ocean uh, because of the storm. And, and I was in a fish for three days. <laughs> um, this, is, this hasn't been my best week. Um, but Jonah liked this shade as he was kind of looking out over Nineveh. But then God sent a worm to attack the plant, and then the sun uh, and the heat got to Jonah, and then Jonah had the gall to complain to God. And God turns to him, and he says, you're angry 
because this plant died. You did not labor to plant it or nurture it. It grew without any aid from you, and it died, and now you're upset. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Listener, I hope you can see how these are thematically linked, where God's like, do you really begrudge my mercy? Uh, you know, it's, it's God's prerogative to show mercy uh, to whomever he chooses. And you know what? Uh, each of us enters by grace and not by merit. And so um, who are we to begrudge uh, God's generosity? Who are we to question the Lord's welcoming of sinners? After all, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul wrote that. And that brings me to my second point. And this one's a little bit shorter. <laughs> Some people like to pit Paul against Jesus as if they're saying different things. Oh, that yeah. the message of God's unmerited favor for sinners is, is, is such a scandal for so many that Paul's writing on that um, is, is so scandalous that they can't handle it. Um, and it makes people nervous. And so they pit Paul against Jesus. And yet... This parable is entirely consistent with Paul. They're, they're not saying different things. They can't say different things right. because the Bible is in its entirety. It's the word of God. We can't pick and choose our favorite parts. And we believe that the Bible is internally consistent. Paul and Jesus are handshake, high five, hashtag two best friends in their theology. <laughs> and that's what this parable is about. It's about God's amazing grace which accepts us not because of our merits, but in spite of our sin. Yes. Well said. Um, I, I don't think there's anything possible to add to that. The, um, I, I would say the, the hermeneutic that so many of us bring to this of seeing um, the, the hours of the day as a metaphor for the hours of our life. Um, we inherit that from Augustine. Uh, that's how he preached on this. Um, uh, he says uh, that uh, if those that were called at the first hour when fresh from their mother's wombs began to be Christians, as it were, that they were baptized, or those at the third hour as boys, or at the sixth hour as young men, or at the ninth hour when verging towards old age, or at the eleventh hour in decay of life, um, but all with the prospect of receiving the one denarius of life eternal. Um, so he, uh, we've inherited from him uh, seeing it that way. And... Um, and so I, I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong. And in fact, Augustine actually made takes a left turn and makes an interesting point um, that you do not know when your life is cut off if you'll live to the eleventh hour or the twelfth hour. So 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 do not put off being baptized and, who, and giving your life to the Lord. <laughs> well, and, and who's to say that you're not the you know the eleventh hour? Right, like pre precisely. You know, yeah. So I I don't know what was happening in his city or his congregation at that point that he felt like. I mean, wasn't that a thing in the Roman Empire, delaying baptism to the very end? Like, uh, uh, I don't know, but Constantine, Constantine, Constantine did that. Did that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he, but, he, you know, he, he, you know, he's like, well, the church teaches it washes away original sin and 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 forgives. You know, it's for the forgiveness of sins. It says in the Bible, baptism is. And so it's right. like, well, if I could wait long enough in my life, right. if I could time it just right, you know, I could be somewhat clean. You know, when I die. Yeah. So and, and that brings to mind the uh, in in the Simpsons at one point Bart Simpson, um, someone comments that he's just a just a godless child, and he says, 
in his inimitable, like crass Bart way. He's like, I was always planning on the presto change of bedside conversion. On my deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, I, so I guess those, those interpretations are probably not wrong, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't think about who are the 11th hour workers um, so much that we forget the point that you just made, which is let's not narrow the field. I mean, at a deeper, deeper level, we are all the 11th hour workers, mm. yeah. right? We are all yeah. honored guests um, in God's kingdom. And none of us have probably begun working since the beginning of the day. Um, and so rather than trying to figure out what, what's the 11th, what's the ninth, what's the third hour, the point of the parable, um, both at the level of Jesus and in God, Matthew's gospel, throughout Matthew's gospel, is that God saves by grace and not by our worthiness. And like you said, uh, Jesus and St. Paul are, uh, you and I have disagreed on the pronunciation of this, univocal, univocal, <laughs> are of one voice on the matter. And I think probably well, that, yeah, and, that. And undisputed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, did, did you have um, other, other thoughts? I really, no, I really think Go it's ahead. that simple. <laughs> it's okay, a power, so, it's a powerful, powerful and straightforward parable. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and since this is so familiar to us and uh, I, I kind of began my discussion in <clears throat> kind of with an understanding of, of who the, the mass, you know, the owner of the vineyard is, but Let's remember at the, the, the original people who heard this would not have known that. So it's, it's important when we read scripture to also put ourselves in their position, um, or at least to try to, to, to say like, because all of scripture me, uh, had a very specific meaning at its time, and it means something for us today. And some, yeah. sometimes those are very similar things, and sometimes those are very uh, different things. Yeah. Uh, but but um, the, the original hearers would not have had that information. And so they would have just heard the story of, of just the injustice of this. Um, and so, the, uh, you know, their kind of moral scruples would be, they'd be a little bit offended at, at, at just kind of the, the injustice of, of, of one person working a great deal and, and receiving very little reward because they wouldn't have identified the owner of the vineyard as God. So you're um, saying it would have been a fresh and shocking uh, yes. metaphor. Yeah. Yes. Um, just to, to, did, did you bring this up? Forgive me if you already did. Uh, the practice of paying day laborers who were likely poor men, right? They, they weren't skilled enough to own their own, you know, uh, carpentry or masonry business or whatever. Um, day laborers, it was common, in fact, commanded in, in Deuteronomy <laughs> to, to pay them. Yes. Um, yeah, think, yeah. 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 So I, I was actually going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and, and like as, as part of a, of a, of a broader point, because um, I think it would be easy as Christians um, to be um, accidental Marcionites. Um, and, and so Marcionite uh, uh, Marcionism is, is, is a, a heresy that, that says that essentially there are two gods that there's like the old Testament God and there's a new Testament God people who, who uh, because admittedly, it can be hard at times to read the Old Testament and, and make sense of, 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 of a loving God who sent a son to die when we see, uh, we know that God is both justice, uh, God is both just and merciful, and yet we 
sometimes uh, if you don't read scripture well, it can seem like the New Testament God is merciful and the Old Testament God is is more just. Um, and, and so we kind of, uh, in, in a similar way, it's easier to see Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees as kind of criticisms of the law. But like I said last week, that, that the Pharisees and, and scribes would, would build fences around the law. And in fact, the, the kind of the interpretation, rabbinic interpretations of the law, uh, sometimes were very different from what the law actually was. I raise that to say that the law was good and the law was just. That, that God's law, uh, uh, there was mercy in the law. And even um, when we see stuff that seems harsh in our day, things like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was merciful in those days. The kind of contemporary attitudes were not, so eye for an eye is, is, is for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Proportional, proportional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like if, if an enemy tribe, you know, um, sneaks in and attacks it and kills a member of your tribe, you don't go wipe them out. You know, you, you have justice and take, and you take the person who, who did the killing to justice. But, you, but, but, but uh, this idea of proportional uh, justice is, is kind of a new and merciful and just uh, thing. And, and that, that is the law. Um, you know, parts of the law seem misogynistic as far as like women who are menstruating or, or things like that. But in fact, that was a mercy, you know, that, that, that a man could not sleep with a woman who was menstruating um, as, as a mercy on, on a, a woman at a vulnerable time uh, of, of the month or after childbirth so that they, they could not be abused. And, and um, that's the same case here. Um, think about how, how, so Israel was to be a light to the world of the God that they worshiped. And think about this. Uh, so I'm going to read two verses from Deuteronomy. Think about the social justice that is found in the Old Testament. Yes. It, yeah. It says, yeah. Yeah. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Think about the justice that's found here yeah. saying that like you do not uh, take advantage of, of the poor. You do not uh, build systems that, that kind of are built on the oppression of, of kind of workers or slave labor. So I, I just wanted to point that out. And think about that in contrast to uh, the surrounding um, <laughs> nations at the time, right? To, to yeah. the, to the Egyptians and then later the Romans for whom like, humans were just fodder to throw at their great building projects. Yeah. Um, I just, mean, just like, sacks of meat, sacks of meat yeah. that would help them build stuff. Yep. Civilizations were built on the exploitation of workers and God says, no, 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 not yeah. so with you. Yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Let's move on to theology. All right, our theology segment today is going to talk about um, someone that I wish I knew more about. 
and we were hoping uh, to to get on a, a a true expert, and it and it fell through. So I'm going to try not to get out over my skis and make out as if I know more about this man um, than I do, and 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 I do want to know more about him. Um, and I'll say his name since I haven't said his name yet, and that's very strange. Um, today, Thursday, we're recording on Thursday. Listener, you'll hear it after Thursday. Um, is uh, in in the Church of England, actually not in the Church of England, in the Episcopal Church and the in the Anglican Church in North America, is the feast day of Edward Bouvery Pusey, priest and teacher of the faith. He died in 1882. And if that isn't like a Victorian stuffy name of the highest order, I, I don't know how we can please you. <laughs> Edward Bouvery Pusey. And he's often just called E.B. Pusey or just Pusey. P-U-S-E-Y. Um, and so we're just going to have to get used to saying that name for the rest of this podcast. Um, and in fact, uh, his followers were slandered. It must have been a goofy name, even in the 19th century, Christopher. His followers were not even followers. Like those who agreed with him after 1840 were slandered as Puseyites. <laughs> mm. And I think among sort of evangelical Anglicanism, it remains sort of a, 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 a bit of a, a good-natured slur. Puseyite. Um, uh, but let me, let me lay some background as to why he's important, um, why I want to know more about him, and, uh, and, and why you should too. Uh, to recap, we've touched upon something called the Oxford Movement previously. Um, but Christianity in England was fairly moribund in 1833. Uh, this is something called the Regency period. Victoria has not yet come to the throne. And uh, there's a Regency in England because frankly, the heir to the throne was deemed unworthy. He was a philanderer and just kind of a wild man. And Christopher, you and I loved watching when we were younger, Blackadder, where we got to see um, uh, the, the Prince Regent just kind of waste his life away in humorous way. And that was played by a young Hugh Laurie who American yeah. listeners, you mostly recognize as house. Um, this is actually a, a very immoral time in, in England. Uh, if you've heard of gin alleys, um, England is probably as drunk in a place as it ever was. Um, the Industrial Revolution hasn't quite kicked in yet. Um, and and uh, there's actually a, a great moral renewal um, in England that, that happens because of renewal in the English church. And um, it has well, and sometimes we should do a, a segment on Victoria, who has been yeah. slandered <laughs> and like like in defense of Victoria. Yes. Oh, Victoria. I am I am here for that. Yeah. You do a multi part series in defense of Victoria. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and there were two movements of renewal in English Christianity. Um, one of them was uh, evangelicalism. Uh, you might have heard of the the name. Uh, Oh my gosh, it's late and I've forgotten it. The, uh, the man who, uh, who passed abolition of, of the slave trade through parliament. Oh, now, now you've passed oh, that to me. Oh, no. Yeah. Wilberforce, oh, William Wilberforce. Wilber yes, the Wilberforce clan um, was, a, was a famous evangelical family. And um, it was a great evangelical revival in, in England. Um, and this was, this was Wesleyan in nature. So this is uh, about a generation after... Uh, uh, John and Charles Wesley. But there's also um, a new strain of English Christianity, um, a Catholic strain um, that comes through uh, Oxford, the University of Oxford. And it and it's, comes through three people, John Keeble, John Henry Newman, and E.B. Pusey. And, and very briefly, the whole goal 
was to was was sensing uh, that there was a really dangerous wind of liberalism that was blowing from the continent um, towards England, uh, and a new way of reading the Bible um, that that read it not just not literally, but, but but metaphorically, or maybe just as a, a good moral document. You might have heard of the Jefferson Bible in which Thomas Jefferson cut out all the miracles um, because of course miracles don't happen. People don't walk on water. People don't rise from the dead. Um, so Jefferson just kept like things like the Sermon on the Mount. There wasn't, there's not actually a lot left of the New Testament if you count out miracles. But um, that's sort of, that's sort of uh, 18th century and 19th century liberalism. And, uh, and, and folks like Keeble, Newman, and Pusey were trying to strengthen English Christianity against that by extending the roots deeper than just the English Reformation, that recognizing that we are part of a, an ancient Catholic and apostolic church. Um, and, uh, and another time we'll talk maybe about John Keeble. He was, I would say, the pastoral heart of the Oxford movement. He wrote moving poetry and hymns. Um, he was a poetry professor at Oxford, uh, but he hated being at Oxford because he loved rural parish life. He had a big family. He loved teaching cricket to the schoolboys and um, ministering to the old ladies. And he just loved kind of parish life and being a pastor. Uh, John Henry Newman um, uh, wrote stirring sermons. He was the rector at uh, St. Mary's Church, the parish church in Oxford. Um, to this day, uh, his sermons uh, are, are, are quite stirring. They, um, I, I love to read them. Um, they quite frequently give me goosebumps. Um, he was the intellectual, the mind behind the Oxford movement. But Pusey is quieter. He is the devotional, the beating devotional heart of the Oxford movement. And so I want to touch upon his life very briefly and, and hopefully maybe make you a little curious about him and uh, send you to, to read maybe some of the things he wrote, which I, I'm sorry, are, are a little more difficult <laughs> than, than Keeble or Newman. And that, that may be why Keeble and Newman are, are more read. Um, so briefly, uh, E.B. Pusey was a Hebrew scholar. That was his, uh, his strength um, and uh, a monumental Hebrew scholar at that at Oriel College in Oxford. This is one of the venerable and, uh, and ancient colleges in Oxford. He, there he met John Keeble and John Henry Newman. They were all three fellows there and they, 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 they must have really hit it off. Um, he, his association with the Oxford movement begins in 1833 when he writes a tract on fasting. Uh, a tract that was, think of it as sort of a, a Victorian blog post. And sometimes these people are called tractarians because they wrote 90 tracts um, part of something that became called Tracks for Our Times. And a year later, then he writes uh, a series of tracks on baptism. And these are really, he doesn't intend for them to be shots fired, but they are shots fired. And I'll, I'll explain that as well. Um, he also writes a, um, a sermon in 1843 and preaches a sermon on the doctrine of the real presence of the body of Christ in Holy Communion. And as a result, is suspended from the University of Oxford for two years from preaching. He may not preach for two years because of that. Um, however, the notoriety from that really helped the sale of the tracts. And so it unintendedly um, probably elevated the status of the Oxford movement and spread it throughout the land even more. Um, and, he was, and, and he was, he was, he was kind of... Uh abuse was kind of hurled at him and he was mistreated for his, his kind of uh, 
like he was not given an opportunity to defend himself. And, and um, just kind of one thing that I read uh, just uh, was so generous in, in the way it described it. It said th- this uh, suspension of preaching for two years, it said a judgment he bore most patiently. Yes. Like his, his just the way he conducted himself was, was just so saintly. Yes. Uh, so there is a, yes. Thank you for saying that because this is really at the heart of who he was as a man, a warm hearted, sincere, humble man who had trouble believing the vitriol that was thrown at him and simply assumed the best of his evangelical critics. Um, And to be fair, there was an evangelical panic in the Church of England at the time. Now we're all kind of familiar with that there's a, there's a Catholic wing in Anglicanism, and we recognize it as legitimate and sort of part of our story and part of our tradition and part of how we worship and how we pray. And um, we wouldn't want to saw that leg off because we'd fall over, right? Um, that, was not, uh, that was not how uh, evangelical churchmen felt in the 1830s and 1840s. There was a genuine panic that this was crypto-Romanism that was coming to destroy uh, God's holy church. And, um, but you're right, he bore it, he bore it so gently and, and so hum- humanely. He um, built an urban uh, uh, poor parish in Leeds, which was a, a, a bustling in, industrial town at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So, so in the slums of Leeds in the West Midlands, he built a church called St. Saviour's at his own expense, just built it. Um, and so, uh, so I want to read a few things um, from from uh, two two articles that I that I particularly liked, Christopher. I know I shared with you a couple of years ago a series of essays um, by a, a church historian by the name of Owen Chadwick, called uh, and the title of the book was "The Spirit of the Oxford Movement." Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I do you remember we sitting at the cabin and and me on the deck pontificating to you about how good the opening essay was. Um, the, the heart of the opening essay uh, of the Spirit of the Oxford Movement um, said that to understand the, the Tractarians, uh, Keeble, Pusey, and Newman, you have to understand that the Oxford Movement was not a movement of the mind, though theolo- theology and theological differences were certainly at play, but rather it was a movement of the heart. Um, and Pusey, to understand Pusey and to understand the tracts, and, and I'll I'll get to the theology in a moment. You have to understand that he was at the heart, at his heart, he was a gentle mystic. Um, He was not a speculative, and I'm cribbing this from notes that I had taken, Christopher, um, from that opening essay. Um, He was not a speculative theologian. Um, He was not naturally a party leader who would kind of arouse a bunch of followers at a university and get them to kind of build a movement. Um, He was just a Hebrew professor who, what he was teaching happened to be uh, the, the thing for that moment. Um, he was retiring and hated popularity, just like Keeble. Um, but whereas Keeble was, was personable, um, he was just kind of a humble, quiet man. Um, his name was sort of accidentally attached to the Oxford movement because John Henry Newman converted to Roman Catholicism. And, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so all the hostility yes. um, kind of... Kind of uh, and, and the inability for for Newman to make headway, uh, so so he defected to Rome, and uh, you know Pusey's adherence um, and and faithfulness, I guess, stemmed the tide of like others not following. That's right. 
is that that he was such a steady um, force um, that 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 um, that that. Uh, that, that many followed him. So he sounded like just a quiet leader in that way. Absolutely. Um, and men always looked upon him as, as almost saintly, uh, somehow remote, beautifully strange, but nonetheless strange because of his utter holiness. And, and uh, it never occurred to him. That's right, Christopher, to convert to Roman Catholicism. Um, so hang on the notes that I, the notes that I had pulled up froze here. Yes. Okay. So um, Newman brought to the Oxford movement, a, a mystical flavor that none of the, the others had. Um, and when he starts talking, when he starts speaking and writing most stirringly, Christopher, it's when he starts writing about the church as the body of Christ. Mm. Um, uh, he almost, it's, he writes as if he almost feels his incorporation into that one mystical body. Um, his language is, I keep saying this word, but it's more mystical than other Victorian writers typically used. Um, he dwells on the participation of the believer in the divinity of Christ, on the union of the soul with his redeemer. Um, and when he speaks this way, he really does rise to heights of beauty. Um, he often reaches when he's, when he's trying to describe um, that kind of unity with Christ, he reaches um, pat, back, past beyond the, Rep, uh, the Reformation, back to the Greek fathers. Um, and uh, kind of the Christian Platonism that's at its root, where we see um, God as the form of the good. Um, and uh, so his roots go much deeper than the pietism of evangelicalism of his day. Um, and uh, you would never call John Keeble or John Henry Newman ecstatic, um, uh, they're sort of, they, they have kind of an English gentleness or an English calm to them. Uh, but Newman can be ecstatic when he talks about um, the presence of the, of, of the soul in the presence of Christ. Um, he liked to talk about Christian obedience, not as a law, but as a quiet resting in the will of God. Um, he thought of the Eucharist as the gate through which the Lord came to take up habitation in his soul. Um, that was a metaphor he often used. Um, Lord, come through the gate of this of this Eucharist and and take up residence in me, and um, you know that's not language that would have been used before the Oxford movement. Um, so, I'm 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 meditating too much kind of on on his personality, and I promised that I wouldn't because I I haven't read him enough. So let me just say um, three things that we owe to him. First, uh, baptismal regeneration. Um, uh, the Church of England probably had what I would say, what I would consider personally, listener, I know many of you disagree with me, um, too low a view of baptism um, coming into the, the, the 19th century. And, um, and he taught um, what I would just say a biblical view of baptism, um, that by the washing of regeneration, we are given, baptized into new life in Christ. So as St. Peter writes, um, the baptism now saves you. Um, he also revived single-handedly Christopher, the doctrine of personal confession, that mm, if you yes, yeah. have something to, to, to get, off, get off your chest, you go see a priest, go be absolved, um, that, would, that had entirely was gone. Um, and then um, the real presence in the Holy Communion, and as, as you noted, Christopher, bore with great grace um, being banned from preaching for two years for, for teaching that. And like you said, he never looked to go to Rome. It never occurred to him. Um, he thought he was just teaching the apostolic faith.
So, um, well, and, and, and everything that you've said, except real presence, um, are, are, are just the plain words of scripture, washing of regeneration, scripture, baptism now saves you scripture. Um, and, uh, but, but also like the real presence isn't articulated as real presence, but, um, but in, uh, John four, uh, you know, we see Jesus teaching that um, the manna, the manna from heaven. Um, if those who eat my flesh and drink my blood dwell in me, and I in them, yeah, and I will raise them up in the last day. So I know we've stopped and talked about different. Um, we talked about John Keeble, uh, John Mason Neal. Um, now today, E.B. Pusey. So um, we'll we'll stop along the way to talk about diff- different tractarians that that that. Um, that I have come to come to love, but this is one of them. Did you have anything to add, Christopher, before we uh, end end our time with culture? Sure. Uh, he died at a place called Ascot Priory, which is is the most English sounding place ever. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there are multiple. Uh, Maybe Ascot can mean multiple things, but I just picture Ascot as like the big tie-like thing, like just a very upper crust kind of. Are there other uses of the word Ascot? I, is, is that a place maybe as well? I, per, perhaps. I, I have no idea, but you're right. <laughs> that, that is a place where you would want some. Where like, you would have high tea and 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 cucumber you know. sandwiches on the lawn <laughs> while watching a, a glorious game of cricket. I actually don't want people to think of that when they think of right. Anglicanism. It just yeah. it just was a bit on the nose. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I know. I know. I I know. I was trying to wrap it up. Um, but I actually want to say one more thing. Um, he was once asked. He hated. Um, and Puseyism, he hated the word Pusey. I don't know that he hated it. Puseyism was used as a slur, and uh, he was one time he was written to a lady, a popular lady, um, uh, Mr. Pusey, what actually is Puseyism? And so he wrote a brief explanation. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just read it and we'll end there. Um, he said, quote, it is difficult to say what people mean when they designate a class of views by my name. For since they are no particular doctrines, but it is rather a temper of mind which is so designated, mm. it will vary according to the individual who uses it. Generally speaking, what is so designated may be reduced under the following heads, and what people mean to blame is what to them appears in excess of them. And he lists uh, five things, and I'll, I'll say the five things. He lists actually six things, but the six is longer, so I'll just say the five. <laughs> one, one, high thoughts of the two sacraments, right? So that's baptism, holy communion. Two, high estimate of episcopacy as God's ordinance. That is, the bishops are the servants of God, intentionally, not accidentally. Three, high estimate of the visible church as the body wherein we are made and continue to be members of Christ. Meaning the visible church matters. You can't be a Christian at home. Mm. Four, regard for ordinances as directing our devotions and disciplining us, such as daily public prayers, fasts, feasts, etc., Five, regard for the visible part of devotion, such as the decoration of the house of God, which acts insensibly on the mind. Meaning, we need to go to church that is beautifully decorated so as to call our minds to prayer. Mm. It, it's funny that that was that these things, these yeah. five things were controversial yeah. <laughs> at the time. Because, you know, these are things that Anglicans would, would assume today. 
as, precisely as, yeah yeah uh, so i guess you got your one last thing i'll, <laughs> I'll do my one last thing and really it's it's to toss it back to you to say that uh that he, he is remembered not only the fact that we're all Puseyites now as Anglicans, yeah. Yeah. those five things, but also um, there's a place called Pusey House. Mm-hmm. And um, Kirk, I know that you hope to someday spend some time there at Oxford at Pusey House. Could you say just a little bit about Pusey House, how it's, it's sort of um, encouraged the study of, of, uh, of, of his work, but why, why is that a place that you want to go and spend time? Yeah, so, yeah. yes, succinctly. <laughs> Pusey House it remains uh, an odd relic from the past because it was endowed so well by people who loved him and cared for him and poured money into this thing. And so, well, much of whatever church body you're a part of, um, Presbyterianism, Roman Catholicism, uh, Anglicanism, Eastern Orthodoxy, well, much of establishment at the highest levels of church governance has been infected by cultural trends. Um, Pusey House remains a bulwark of classic ancient Catholic Anglicanism. And it's um, uh, people who have been there. We've had Andrew DeFusco on um, the show a month ago. We'll have him on again. He's gone there several times. He took a sabbatical and spent some time there um, in prayer and worship and study. And it is like, they, they say it's like stepping through a, through a portal into, into another time. It is truly a place where, where the ancient faith is preserved and kept faithfully. And um, a, lot of, a lot of current controversies um, are left at the door. Pusey House does a good job of, of doing that. So controversies that are raging in the church where people like to sharpen their knives, um, that none of that is allowed inside. Um, the prayer and worship is beautiful. Uh, the library has original documents that um, it, it remains a place where you, want, you need to go if you want to study certain particular things um, around his life and his era. Um, yeah, it's, it, it remains that. And so, um, so much of Christianity has become politicized is I guess what I'm going to, I guess what I'm mm-hmm. saying in so many different colleges have to choose one side or another. And it remains just this, mm-hmm. uh, this oasis of faithful Catholic apostolic Christianity. And it's, it's love beloved and beautiful um, by so many for that reason. How's that? Awesome. Love it. Let's, let's move on to culture. Let's do it.
So Christopher, you and I had been debating uh, what to talk about. And uh, I keep saying this show and you keep saying, okay, well, here's the thing. Um, I- I'm not going to watch it. So we decided we're just going to talk about it because it doesn't matter because you're never going to watch it. So it's okay. And that show is a show that I think began on YouTube TV, right? And then Netflix bought it um, very recently. And that is Cobra Kai. <laughs> Cobra Can't Kai. avoid it. Everyone's talking about it. So if you're not familiar with this, then you're living under a rock. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Cobra Kai uh, was, uh, I think we have two seasons now. I haven't begun the second season. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm about to begin uh, the last episode of the first season. So this is great. I can't give you spoilers, listener, because I don't, I don't know how this ends. Uh, in the 1984 film, Karate Kid, we've got the, uh, the, the hard scrabble Jersey kid that moves to uh, the Hollywood Hills, the hills of uh, the Valley uh, in, in, in Los Angeles. And- Valleys have hills? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. On the sides. Okay, Remarkable right. geographical feature. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he's the hardscrabble kid who, uh, who isn't allowed, or he doesn't want to get into um, this dojo that's kind of uh, all the elite uh, like Encino, Encino Valley. I don't even know the names of these neighborhoods, right? But um, anyhow, his nemesis is this kid who's been born blonde kid with a with the silver spoon in his mouth. And uh, at, at the at the at the culminating point at the end of Karate Kid, um, Ralph Macchio kicks his butt with the famous crane kick. Uh, listener, I, I hope you've seen it because it's a great great moment. Uh, the okay, idea- Kirk. Okay, Kirk. Now you need to <laughs> to share the video on the Facebook group of your kids reenacting <laughs> the crane kick. Okay. Yes, <laughs> we did have great uh, Karate Kid family in a movie night um, to set this up so Kim and I could watch Cobra Kai. So Cobra Kai flips the script, and is um, is it like the Wicked of the Karate Kid? Uh, I'd say it's more subtle and interesting than that. So the idea is, <laughs> you love Wicked. I hate don't Wicked. You? <laughs> I hate Wicked so much. Right. So the idea, the idea is that um, Ralph Macchio's character, uh, immediately after, at the end of Karate Kid, his life, instead of being the hard scrabble Jersey kid, uh, everything begins to turn up roses for him. Um, so he gets an education, he becomes, he, he gets a bunch of auto dealerships and he ends up running like one of the top two auto dealerships in, in Southern California. So life is good. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got smart, intelligent kids. Um, he's got a great home with a great pool in Southern California. Life is good. Um, he's kind of happy. Um, he's chill. He's got this, this, this corny, but effective ad campaign for his series of, uh, for a series of uh, car dealerships that, that plays on his uh, karate childhood. Like, um, we'll chop the competition or something like <laughs> that. And oh like God. he gives everyone a bonsai tree when they buy a car. And in the meantime, uh, the antagonist, uh, the, the, the wealthy Cobra Kai kid who faces off in the championship at the end, at the culminating moment of the Karate Kid, his life goes down. And um, he does not go on to get an education. He kind of, I don't know, parties his way out of high school or out of college. And he's just kind of a contractor who's living paycheck to paycheck in a crummy apartment. He drinks too much, estranged from his wife, estranged from his child. 
made mistakes, um, had just doesn't have the kind of emotional ability to, to patch up those relationships. And, and so just kind of, we see in the opening scenes, like every night kind of ends with him, like nostalgically watching eighties movies <laughs> while drinking too much Coors. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you and I actually, you, you were suggesting like, what, what's up with 80s nostalgia? Because of course, this all kicked off with, um, this kicked off Stranger with uh, Things. Stranger Things, which I loved. I mean, that was just catnip for me. And I was born in 1979. So I'm at the very tail end of Gen X, but like legitimately Gen X. And so I grew up with, I mean, all these things, uh, Karate Kid, I wax on, wax off. I mean, I was, I remember going to a neighbor's house, Travis Erickson, Christopher, I went to his house to watch this <laughs> thing and I, I, I loved it. Um, grew up with Transformers, all that stuff. So I'm, I am that guy. Um, but anyhow, we were wondering what's up with 80s nostalgia. And I think as we watch these old movies, uh, Karate Kid, E.T., I think what's, uh, what's bracing about them is it's a mix of kind of the 70s anarchy in America. Like the 70s were just an awful time. Yeah. Um, and then you have, um, that, that still exists in 80s movies, right? There's a bit of an anarchy, yeah. both a moral anarchy and a sense that like, there are no authority figures. Like the teachers are all incompetent. The parents are all absent. Um, uh, the, 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 it, it's sort of like, um, uh, like Charlie Brown, like a scenario where like you can't, even if the adults were to talk, it wouldn't make any sense. Wah, 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 right? Like that's all the, right? Ben Stein's character in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Is intentionally... Uh, so horrific, right? He puts everyone to sleep, right? Everyone's face is like bouncing off their desk. So but at the same time, we, we saw a return to optimism. In the that's 80s. right. So you, you have that Ferris fusion. Bueller. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ferris Bueller. Um, you know, Chicago isn't a dystopia. You know, like it's this beautiful city with parades and and Ferraris. Yeah. 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 And so I think 80s nostalgia is an interesting fusion of those elements. And I think younger people who are now watching Stranger Things and seeing kids just screwing around a neighborhood in bikes <laughs> and the parents don't know where they are and they don't care. <laughs> um, I think there's the frisson of, uh, there's, there's the thrill of transgression. Um, but it, once upon a time, it wasn't transgression. That was just life as a child. Um, but now with Cobra Kai, um, it's leavened now with, I think maybe our, our, our modern morality that kind of maybe kids shouldn't be running around getting into fights like in back alleys and like like throwing parties and drinking heavily at 16 and whatever and all that stuff that was in 80s movies and uh it's it it's it's interesting um cobra kai is interesting that way so i think it's a it's a it's a fun mixture of the 80s nostalgia with kind of our current maybe gentle moral commentary on um on the excesses of of the 80s in that way um, I know we're running out of time. I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk. I have a, I have a longer, I had a longer theory about um, the anarchy in, in 80s movies. Um, but um, you, you wanted to, to say a few things about 80s nostalgia and maybe why, why no, we have an appetite for it. No, I didn't. No? <laughs> I kind of want to hear more about like why everyone is, is going nuts over a Cobra Kai. Um, it, so part of it is the 80s nostalgia. It's, it's just, it's just, there's a feel-good aspect to it, of, to, to mm. the nostalgia of it. But people also find it to be a compelling tale. Yeah, okay. So I'll say more about that. Without, and I, I, won't, I won't spoil it because I, I literally don't know how it ends. Um, <laughs> it's, it's compelling because um, 
we get to see things fresh. I mean, I, as a kid, I didn't give two thoughts about, um, about the antagonist. What's his name? Uh, John Lawrence, something Lawrence is the name of that. Joey Lawrence, John Lawrence. Joey Lawrence was a different guy in the eighties and nineties. I think John Lawrence is his name. I, I didn't care about him. He, like he got his butt kicked and that was great. And uh, then I went to the backyard and did the crane kick and I wanted to be, wanted well, to be Ralph there's, Macchio. There's, there's also, uh, a, so I just saw on Twitter today, uh, <laughs> s- someone did like a two minute commentary of the basketball scene from Three Ninjas. Oh yeah. No. Do Okay. Do you actually remember that? Or did you see? No, I remember Three Ninjas. I don't remember okay. the basketball yeah, scene. Yeah. Three Ninjas. Like basically the Three Ninjas, uh, the, these bullies show up, these bullies who are like, a foot and a half taller than them show up to the basketball court and are kind of jerks to them. And the three ninjas show them up by, you know, dunking basketballs though, even though they're like five, you know, <laughs> four, four, six or something. Right. Um, but, but th- I think there is something satisfying that, that just hits us in the pleasure spots of our brain um, of, of a, of a bully getting put in this place. Yeah. And yeah. so there's something very unsophisticated in just the satisfaction of seeing the underdog um, kid beat beat the jerk blonde kid in the tournament, and then you forget about it. And yeah. so you're saying it adds a little bit of subtlety and adds a backstory and adds pain, and 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 you kind of understand the bully a little bit more. Yeah, right. So the story gets it was a it was a fun story, but it gets more interesting because it's not clear who you're rooting for, and you find yourself mm. first hesitantly and then more openly. Uh, rooting for Lawrence. Mm. Um, and, you know, how many car dealerships does uh, Ralph Macchio need to still be mm. happy, you know? Mm. And, and not intentionally, but accidentally, um, people in Ralph Macchio's orbit um, make uh, Lawrence's life, continue to make Lawrence's life miserable. Mm. And, uh, and um, he starts up his own dojo and he calls it Cobra Kai. And it really bothers Ralph Macchio. And Ralph Macchio tries to go to uh, the annual Karate Association meeting and, and uphold his lifetime ban because Cobra Kai had a lifetime ban <laughs> mm. from uh, the Southern California Karate Association. And suddenly we're like, we're rooting for Lawrence to get a second mm. chance, like give him a mm. second chance. And even, even the lessons he's teaching at first, our original Cobra Kai, um, like he's kind of trying to teach them to be jerks. But in the encounter, in the mentorship relationship, as you're an adult mentoring younger kids, even if you're trying to mentor them into being a jerk, the whole process of mentoring actually <laughs> inevitably changes like, you. There's something kind of loving, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So wow. bringing a song alongside vulnerable young adults wow. as he's trying to teach them, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Like that's the Cobra Kai mantra. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Even in trying to teach them that, there are times when he needs to comfort them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he needs to come alongside them. And they, they at times come alongside him when he's vulnerable because like he's in a financially precarious situation. And, um, and so they're, they're, they're really unexpectedly touching moments in what is otherwise pretty kind of a, like just kind of a fun romp um, through uh, kind of uh, just karate catnip stuff and 80s nostalgia. Um, I, it does seem like there's a uh, Romeo and Juliet uh, trajectory that's happening. Hmm. So, so uh, uh, Ralph Macchio, um, unbeknownst to him, begins to mentor and teach karate to Lawrence's 
um, estranged son hmm. and Lawrence's uh, prize pupil begins to date uh, Ralph Macchio's daughter. Hmm. And, they, and neither of each other know this up, up until the end of, of uh, season one. And I haven't watched the denouement, the final, final episode of season one. So how, how it'll all wrap up, but yeah, it's, it's good storytelling. Uh, it's Christopher, do you remember you and I took about six weeks of karate? <laughs> yes. I do. <laughs> Not even enough for me to know anything at all, but it's just, it's, it's a, a but certainly enough for us to put on our karate pajamas and just <laughs> go like full contact, duke it out in the yard, <laughs> uh, sparring. Uh, thankfully we were too yes. light and not strong enough to actually do real damage on each other, but <laughs> that, that was my memory of it. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll end by this. Um, uh, the the 80s infusion, the gust from the 80s that you feel, the gust of wind that you feel blowing through on the, into the screen of Cobra Kai. Boy, am I mixing metaphors. Um, here's why I think you love it. Um, and it has to do with how bad the 70s were. And uh, maybe if I remember this, it's late and I'm, I'm going to go straight to bed after this. But uh, there's an iconic moment at the end of uh, a World Series game in 76 or 77 in New York City. And it's uh, it's Yankees and Yankees and uh, Dodgers, and Reggie Jackson hits I think two home runs or three home runs that that night and wins it for the Yankees, and um, a Dodger pops out uh, to the shortstop or to the pitcher to end the game, and Reggie Jackson was playing in the outfield at that point, and uh, the announcers with old timey great great accents is like and the Yankees win it. And we'll head back to Los Angeles for game six. Oh, look at Reggie. Oh, you can tell he was a running back in his days at Auburn. And what is Reggie Jackson doing? Within 10 seconds, Christopher, there are people on the field. There's mm -hmm. a cop kneeling on some hippie's head, beating his, smashing his brains out with a billy club. <laughs> like, as another hippie is like trying to rip it out of his, out of his arms. Reggie Jackson stiff arms two dudes, like bull rushes another dude, and then spins away from a, like a third guy to get to the clubhouse. Just to get off the field. To get off the field. As the announcers are casually in their genteel New York accents, George Plimpton <laughs> accents, commenting on it, this had become ordinary. Ordinary. Within 10 years, America had entirely fallen apart. I mean, uh, New York City at that point had 5,000 murders a year, yeah. um, had rolling yeah. blackouts. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a true nadir, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, I mean, if you watch any movies from the 70s, just kind of that there's, there's a sense, there's a, there's a gnawing sense um, that, that we've seen our best. Yeah. And so you have that. That Stay anarchy, the, the I mean, total moral breakdown, right? Divorce yeah. culture, latchkey kids, like parents can't be trusted. The adults are out to lunch. And yet by 84, the economy's turned around. Um, it's, it's stuff is starting, like there's, there's a renewed conf confidence and optimism. And it's this weird clash of anarchy and <laughs> renewed optimism. And it just feels so different than our, mm. than our very, I don't know what to say, scripted uh, culture. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's very bracing. It's a bucket of water over the head and it's just so much fun. And I was lucky 
that I just, I, I was born long enough ago to just remember some of it and to smile when I see it on TV. Mm. So that's that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a good place uh, to turn to prayer. Yes. Let's do that. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, you raised up your servant, Edward Bouverie Pusey, to be a pastor in your church and to feed your flock. Give abundantly to all pastors the gifts of your Holy Spirit that they may minister in your household as true servants of Christ and stewards of your divine mysteries. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Light in our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, Defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week, Christoph. <laughs>